Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Support for this episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. Their newly released book, MIPS Manual 2020, is available on Amazon now. This book is great for practice administrators and clinicians who need to keep up with the changing healthcare laws. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. Today, we're talking with Annika Hevener. Not only is she the executive director of Partners Healthcare, which gives her global experience, but she's also taking on a master's program at Harvard University. We learned so much from her and think you will too. All right, so let's get started. First and foremost, thanks for having me. Annika Hevener, I'm the executive director of a new program at Partners Healthcare called Enterprise Data and Digital Health. For background, Partners is one of the largest provider systems in Eastern Massachusetts. Our two flagship hospitals are Massachusetts General, along with Brigham and Women's Hospital. We also have a number of specialty hospitals that you might have heard of as well, like uh, Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital, as well as McLean. We see over 2 million active patients per year and we have over $2 billion in research annually from everything from the NIH and everything in between. So we're a, a large academic medical center. And so when it comes to digital health, you know, things take time for systems of ours to do things at scale. And so really, you know, this, this new program came about at the end of our EPIC implementation. We spent seven years implementing EPIC across our system. Seven years seven. implementing the EMR? Exactly. So How we, many end users is that? for anyone that's listening. Yeah, so it depends on sort of how you count it. It's also a number that is also growing and rapidly expanding as we continue to bring in some of our affiliates as well. And that's really where we're focused right now. So we did our big flagship hospitals, we did our community hospitals, and now we're reaching out to our RSO network. And even further, you know, now we get to go into maintenance mode and continue to upgrade. So we are touching a high number of our physicians, well over, you know, five thousand. So it's definitely, you know, when it comes to the magnitude of a program like that, the training, the maintenance, it is just a, a labor of love to 
keep your electronic health record up and running. But with all the time and attention that we paid to that, you know, we were very mindful that we had limited capacity to do other things in digital health. And so part of the genesis of the program that I now look after, Enterprise Data and Digital Health, was to catch us up. So we stitched up a strategy just last year in four months to come up with a five-year strategy for what it would look like to create a system-wide approach to digital health. In true partners fashion, with so many sites, so many great ideas, there's a thousand flowers blooming. And so how do we sort of take all those concepts and all those great ideas, but come together as a unified strategy so we're not making duplicative investments. So we are being smart about the way we spend and invest in this area. And so we were very fortunate to come together with a, a preliminary strategy and preliminary business cases. But we went to uh, the, the board of our organization, the Partners Board, in February of this year. And it was originally supposed to be an introductory session, just giving them context on what we were working on, why this was important to the system. They made a motion to vote that day and approve the program and improve a multi-million dollar investment in this program. I mean, that says something. That's hard to do. Exactly. It's a, we were a little bit of the dog that actually caught the bus because we did have a, a strategy. We did have a business plan, but there's a big chasm to cover when you go from strategy into operations for a program of this size. And just to give a little context, between you know fiscal year 19 and fiscal year 20, we will be spending over $100 million. Wow. So 18 months, $100 million. That's a lot of money to spend on a lot of different things very quickly. And so we hit the ground running. And that's really where I've transitioned into my current role. I supported doing the strategy, was formerly a part of our business development group, but was asked to move into operations to keep this train rolling. How did you get to where you are? Can we take a step <laughs> back and get to know you yeah, a little bit? Yeah, yeah, sure. Really rewinding the clock. I did my undergrad at the University of Chicago in a funky degree called uh, Comparative Human Development. So what I loved about it and, you know, would recommend for anybody who is in college and trying to figure out where to go or what to study, I got to spend a year in four different disciplines, anthropology, psychology, sociology, and biology. It sounds like a dream. It was a dream because, you know, who knows what they want to do when they grow up, even when you're in college. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And so to be able to sort of have that well-rounded degree and then sort of be able to spin that, you know, did I want to go into marketing and advertising because I, quote unquote, knew human beings so well. Uh, No, but I actually ended up going into strategy consulting and I felt like that was a fantastic training ground. You know, the University of Chicago taught me to work incredibly hard. I humbly say that I've had some tough jobs, but I've never worked harder than I did at the University of Chicago. And um, I was very fortunate then to move into strategy consulting, which was a fantastic training ground just for all things business. Did that for six years, four years in the U.S., two years abroad. And where I really sort of had some catalytic moments in my career was when I was abroad living in London. I was very fortunate to work for the U.K. Department of Health, helping advise them in the construction of a new venture capital fund, which is now turned into to the Dementia Discovery Fund. It's currently valued at $350 million. It's led by SV Life Sciences. But way back in the day, in the beginnings of this, it started with a sentence that was in a communique coming out of the G8 summit on dementia when David Cameron was the prime minister. And the sentence was something along the lines of create a novel funding mechanism to increase research in dementia that leads to commercialization. So out of that one sentence, 
In 18 months, we had stood up a venture capital fund that in the first close of capital, we had around $120 million. So it was an amazing story for me to be a part of catalyzing and operationalizing a new venture capital fund of which we did completely backwards. We raised the money and then went to find the fund manager. So it was a wonderful experience, you know, to sit at the feet of really some of the the godfathers and godmothers of uh, venture capital, learn VC from them, learn what to look for in investing, learn how to do business development, and really how to operationalize something that would invest in hopefully tens to hundreds of different assets in a very high risky area of, of research and neuroscience. Being in VC, but still dabbling in the healthcare space with that yep. sentence and centered around dementia, I'm sure you had exposure to the UK health system. Yep. How does that influence the work you're doing now with in Massachusetts with so many thousands of providers and so many millions of lives? Totally. Great question. Because it's a huge juxtaposition. It, it is. And what always fascinated me when I was living in the UK is, is we were always getting approached about like, what are they doing in the States? Well, and, and I was like, what do you mean? What are they doing in the States? They're like, they're like, well, they're so innovative over there. You know, they've got startups over here and over there, and there's a great idea here, and they have money. They have money for these things, too. And I was like, and, and I was always like well, you know, we're innovative because we're that broken. It's, it's a, we're required to innovate because we need help. Right. And so as compared to the NHS single-payer system, don't get me wrong, they have their various digital accelerators within the NHS. They are definitely committed to this space, but it just takes a lot longer to move the needle when the funding structure for the NHS, the funding structure for the way money is set aside for innovation, how government influences, how politics, I mean, it's the same in the U.S. as much politics influences healthcare, but they have a different model. And, you know, they are in the current structure of the NHS, obviously they're going into a significant deficit. So it's hard to take a risk and look at other ways of delivering care when you're just trying to keep the lights on and you have very common things like winter pressures that happen every year that you've got to create extra capital, extra funding for to make sure that the hospital doors at the emergency room or the A&E, as they say in the UK, <laughs> stays open. So you have a great depth of knowledge. So you had four-month strategy. Yeah. Where are you in the process of all yeah. this and getting this, you know, getting it voted on? Yeah, I'm thinking, how do you decide to spend $100 million? Yeah, well, jumping from the UK, coming to partners, coming to Boston, you know, very fortunate in leading this program and having, you know, this big question of, well, what to do with the money? And the, the first challenge that we face is that there's a lot of people with a lot of opinions around what we should do with that money. And rightfully so. We have wonderful experts across the, the, the partner system. We are the heart of teaching hospitals. We have some of the greatest minds in, you know, the medical profession that want to help deliver great care. But that doesn't mean we all have the same vision for how to operationalize it. And so we spend a ton of time trying to build consensus. We have air thematic areas that we have committed to, like patient experience. It's one of our top priorities as a system. There are things that I would prefer not to admit on uh, air uh, that you can't do at partners, but you definitely wouldn't expect that from mobile banking or you'd be shocked if you couldn't do those same things when you're trying to book a flight. So we have you know, just basic catch up to do. But at the same time, the program is also looking ahead to the future. We have a lot of innovative ideas coming to a conference like Health and seeing all these startups and, you know, they are trying 
to find that front door at a big health system like Partners of how do I find the right person to talk to, to help them understand my concept and how my concept could help them? How do I then find that right clinical champion? And so funding this unified front door, this innovation pathway is something that we are are funding as a part of our investment with Enterprise Data and Digital Health. We have just also announced that we're created a, a digital specific venture fund. It's not big, but it's one that as we, again, start to create this unified front door, have the intake of these new cohorts of startups. We want to be able to, for the solutions that are proving value and also are getting the benefit of scaling their solution across a huge system like partners. We want to be able to be equity partners with them. So that's one of the many things that we're doing with with our big chunk of money. But yes, patient experience, clinical operations, we're doing a huge overhaul of our data ecosystem. Everything from how we get the, the different data streams in to how we stage it to curation to how we serve it up through different analytics and insights and get it to the right end user. So that whole value chain we are overhauling. So as you can imagine, with, uh, with that kind of money, there's a lot of different things. And I like to joke that this program is a yes and. So someone will say, are you doing patient experience? Yes, and uh, we're also doing. So yeah, that's a little teaser of what we're doing with Enterprise Data and Digital Health. When I met you, isn't that one of the things you said? We're the company of yes ands. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, very much so. And it's a privilege, right? It's it's a wonderful experience to be able to look across the entire healthcare spectrum, look at all the different needs, and to be able to have the resources, not only financially, but the talent, to then go and, and do something about it. In my role, I get to look across all that we're doing. And in our fiscal year 20 alone, we are hiring 173 people. That is a huge lift for us as a... All in Massachusetts or from all over? So, you know, we, we're actually committed to a remote model as well, but naturally, you know, that it... We obviously want a strong presence in Boston too. And it's a competitive market. It is so hard to hire for a program like this at our size and scale when you're competing with the Amazons, the Googles, the great biotechs that just is the Boston tech bubble, Harvard and MIT and all the great IVs that are in the New England area can only crank out so many people. So it's really important for us in this program to have a diversified HR strategy, how we can tap into all types of talent, how we can have remote workers, how we can really show the value of this work, being mission-driven, a mission-driven organization, but also the real opportunity for folks is the exposure and the ownership and the potential that they can show in participating in something like this. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt, but we wanted to let you know about a way you can support Hit Like a Girl podcast directly. We've partnered with patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com is a way for us to connect with our listeners and fans in a direct way and ask them to support us so we can continue creating more great content like this episode you're listening to. Patreon.com is not so much of a one-time contribution, but more like a subscription to provide support to independent creators like us. Patrons who pledge even just $2 a month give us the stability we need to continue producing podcast episodes. In return for your patronage, we're offering virtual high fives, personalized thank you notes, and even shout outs on our episodes. When you become a patron of Hit Like a Girl podcast, you're supporting our channel directly, so we won't be making podcast episodes for some viral audience or for ads. We're making them for you, our listeners. This allows us to focus on topics related to women, healthcare, and technology. With your support on Patreon.com, we're able to spend that time having meaningful conversations and doing more great work 
that can positively impact the lives of other women in healthcare and tech. So join us on patreon.com and let's make something amazing together. When you talk about the overhaul of the data ecosystem in its current state, you admitted mm-hmm. kind of earlier that there was a slowdown while you ramped up over this very long timeline for yes. the EMR implementation. Did you use that existing data and some of its current state and massage it to help align that data with these priorities for this new these new initiatives and all of the spending? And you mentioned patient experience. Can you share with us like what is the biggest pain point coming out of your data yeah. that makes you mention that? Yeah. So so you know when we were implementing Epic, you know again, time and attention focus, you know every system sort of has its threshold. So we we weren't really able to focus in a dedicated, unified, enterprise way on digital health. We had a lot of different concepts that we saw. We saw a lot of things that we needed to do. We just couldn't get there. Like what? We have identified within our patient population is that they can't do direct scheduling online. If you're an existing patient or even a new patient, we can't book an appointment for you online. And that may sound really simple of, again, when you think about what's going on with the airline industry and what you think about with all, on mobile banking for, for finance, That's crazy, but the lift behind coordinating with all of our sites, the lift behind each doctor being able to expose, you know, their available appointments and also the risk. You know, we want to ensure quality care. We, of course, don't want to have a scenario where patient X is booking 10 appointments with physician Y because they think, you know, they need 10 appointments. We want to be able to to make sure that we're doing the optimal clinical model in care delivery. So how do we reconcile what the patient is looking for and expecting of, I want to own my own care journey, I want autonomy, but at the same same time, also having the realities of you know clinical care and quality and making sure that we have the appropriate capacity. And it's right for that patient to see that doctor at that time. It's really hard to do that and sell that within a system of our size because each hospital has a different way of doing it. But that is an example of one of the things that we're catching up on. We are we're tackling that. It's a it's a it's one we work on, on a daily basis. And hopefully, you know, in, in FY20 we will start to roll out and start to bring that capability across the system. You know, we ask all of our guests the same second question, but mm. you are kind of an anomaly because oh <laughs> we literally say, okay, if you had no consideration, if you could solve any problem in healthcare or health IT without consideration of the barriers, yeah. the time, the money, the resources, yeah. what would you solve and why? And that's literally what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd like to think that that's it too. The one thing that I think, you know, we don't tap into with my program as much, and this is a little bit related to one of my, my side hustles. I'm actually a part-time student at Harvard Medical School in our global health program. And one of the things I think we often miss are the social determinants of health and how that fits into the patient care journey and how that fits into just the health ecosystem at large. One of the things I really appreciate about my program at Harvard is that we do focus on the underserved communities, low and middle income countries, and how we do health system strengthening there. And, you know, I look at a country like Vietnam where they have better digital uptake than we do here in the States, even in incredibly rural parts. Google just did an amazing study on the digital uptake in rural Vietnam and, you know, 
40% of truly rural uh, Vietnamese people have smartphones. And so how are we not delivering care to these people, delivering care to patients where they are in their care journey? How are we not using these solutions? How are we so focused just on sort of cracking the, the US code, but at the same time, we can totally be supporting what's going on around the world in areas that are, that are in dire need. So that's something that I'm passionate about and uh, would love for the work that I do at Partners to, to support that as well. So our guests always want to know about you and I'm sure we can explore your wish some more, but you also said in addition to this full-time job that your side hustle yeah. is being a medical student at Harvard. Yeah. So our listeners want to learn about you. That's why we're here. Yeah. We can't not touch on this. So we're not yeah. going to go backwards, no, no, but it's tell us more. Yeah, so so in, in full transparency, I'm not becoming a doctor. It's a master's program at Harvard Medical School in uh, the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine. It's a master's of science in global health delivery and I chose to pursue this for a couple of different reasons. One, being able to work in London, work on the Venture Capital Fund with the Dementia Discovery Fund, you know, it was a privilege to work with the World Dementia Council. It was a privilege to sort of represent government in a global context and see what the incredible need is, not only for mental health services in low and middle income countries, but, you know, dementia is barely on their radar. So seeing that incredible need really spurred me to think about how I can use my skill set and operations and strategy that I've built in, you know, higher income countries and apply those same skills to lower income countries. Not to say that, you know, I have any grand answers, but I love the opportunity to build public-private partnerships and bring together really innovative financing models, similar to what we did with the Venture Capital Fund in the UK, and seeing the potential of applying that around the world. So I have been working closely with a team in Vietnam that is working on uh, transforming primary care with the Ministry of Health of Vietnam. So that's where I've been paying a lot of my uh, attention as a part of my time at Harvard. Yeah, working on a thesis, working on a side hustle in Vietnam, working on stuff at Harvard Medical School, and yeah, full-time job too. It's really impressive though, and especially the way kind of your your personal narrative is woven together, and we've heard you mention Vietnam. The one yeah. thing I would have asked is, you know, is there something you're particularly passionate about? Yeah. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, no, absolutely, but, but I want to build on one of the comments you made around, it, it sounds impressive. I mean, you swing a stick here at the health conference and everybody's doing impressive stuff. But what I think is really neat about what health is doing this year is, you know, today's session and having the focus time on women in health, women in leadership and the importance of, you know, women doing great, amazing work in healthcare and lifting one another up in the process. It's really been a privilege of mine to, you know, we have a little bit of a joke at Harvard especially for us, us single women at, at Harvard. It's like, I thought I'd meet a great doctor at Harvard Medical School, but in fact, I met more cool women. And that's, you know, again, the case here at Health. It's it's wonderful that we're able to commit to rallying around one each other, lifting one another up, helping one another get to those places of leadership that I think we can together really shine and make a difference in healthcare. I absolutely agree. And I think that this is an, an amazing environment and an amazing time for that. I feel like we're all sort of leveling up and helping each other level up. And it's yeah. amazing to see. Yeah. Speaking of women in the VC world, mm-hmm. that like, it's not super common. So yeah. how do you, can you speak a little bit about what your experiences are? Yeah. Are there more women entering that arena? Yeah. I mean, so in my current role, not so much tied to, to VC anymore. And even the role that I had previously, you know, consulting for the UK, you know, government, I was new to the VC world and I was sort of a VC light in that regard too. It's not just in VC. It's not just in healthcare. There's a variety of different places where women have done 
done great work and need to be able to step into those leadership roles. I think, yeah, VC is an opportunity where, I mean, we've all seen the stats, you know, those numbers need to change. But I think it's also helping women understand what makes them unique and makes their access to those positions or to those opportunities appropriate, that we can sell the people that we work with that, yes, Sally is the right fit for that job because of A, B, and C, and that she does have the talent to go and and deliver on that. I read a fantastic book that listeners all across, I can't tell you who the author is because it's Sally and Marshall something, but (laughs) it's called How Women Rise. And that has been a book that I, I, uh, it was recommended to me, read it this fall. It talks about sort of some of the 12 different things that women expect and it's actually detrimental. And so how can we sort of be mindful of these 12 different things? Can you name one or two? One of them is on, you know, disease to please. Another was on the the belief that we will naturally be, our accomplishments will naturally be recognized and we will naturally be promoted because of it. Yeah, so those are two that, that just popped to mind, but they do a really nice job of, of showing that we have worked hard hard to get to these places. We do in air quotes well. And now, you know, how do we start to transition then into these management roles? And how do we start to own our tendencies, our habits, and keep them as strengths, but rather than avoid them going one step too far and becoming a weakness? So how women rise. Yes. Yes. How women rise. Next on my list. How do you keep up with all the complexities and all of the shifting things that are going on? Tell our listeners, what do you read? Where do you listen? Ooh, good question. Really, really hard. Earlier in my career, especially in the digital health space, I used to feel a little guilty that I didn't know about all the startups or I didn't know about the cool hot ones that, you know, VC money was going to X, Y, and Z. And I, you can't, you just, you simply can't. So you have to know, you know, and it takes time to sort of mine those newsletters, those communications that are really impactful and meaning to you. So meaningful to you. So I've got the Financial Times, I've got WAPO, I've got New York Times, you, you know, everybody else has those. Maybe I'll share actually a newsletter I subscribe to that is a little outside of tech and, and VC and healthcare in general. It's called Peak Performance. It's actually written by some guys that act, often contribute to Outside Magazine. They wrote a, a book called The Passion passion project. It just talks about, you know, the mentalities of high performers. And it talks about everything from sort of how we message to ourselves, you know, complex situations, how we process information, how we, you know, develop grit and endurance. And I think that has been a wonderful weekly newsletter for for me to read and reflect on, especially as I look at the, the things that I'm trying to tackle on a daily basis, trying to figure out what I can do to contribute to this, you know, crazy health ecosystem as we've been talking about. It's not an easy job and there's so much to do and there's so little time and it can easily be one that burns folks out. I mean, we talk about physician burnout as a huge issue right now, but just healthcare burnout as well for a lot of us. I really recommend uh, the Peak Performance Newsletter as just a way to continue to ground yourself in how to self-motivate, how to be, I had to be mindful of what really drives you in times of adversity and when things aren't going your way. Well, Annika, if people want to work with you, if they want to kind of connect with you or figure out how they can help and support your mission and what you're up to, how can they do so? Oh, I mean, LinkedIn, of course. I'm not hard to find, hopefully, on the internet. Annika Hevener is out there. All right. Are you on Twitter by any chance? You know, I should be. People keep saying, like, I should start to, you know, tweet things. Med Twitter is a pretty cool place. Health IT Twitter is a pretty cool place. It's a nice community. It is very welcoming. And there's that hashtag uh, HCLDR, the healthcare leader. 
chats uh-huh. that go on on Tuesday nights that are just so many brilliant minds, ideas, and opinions thrown about in a really productive and progressive way. A hundred percent. Sounds like I got to catch up. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Yeah, this has been really great. It's been fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Take care. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Thanks again. See you soon. Thank you to Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. You can find out more about them at www.chirpybirdinc.com.